this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. If you imagine that your actual ego size is the size of a peanut or a walnut, what we do is we drop that peanut into a balloon and then we blow the balloon up as big as we can make it to keep people away from that little insecure center. And that makes us look big and that makes us fill a room with ourselves and that makes us have charisma and be somebody that people want to follow. But when we are wounded, when we are faced with an injury to our egos, just like a balloon, it pops in the snap of a finger and is right-sized back down to that little peanut again. And it just changes your world. If something's not going right, your, your ego is so tied in to these successes that when there are failures, they hit much harder. Good morning. Hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO and founder of Manage Flitter. It is Thursday, 29th of uh, nearly said October of November, where I'm recording this from. Probably you're listening to this, say, a few days later. You're listening to episode number 127 of our podcast. We call it the It's a Monkey podcast, where we talk about everything related to technology news, political economy, startups, and all those wonderful things. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kate Frappel, who's joining us from Canada somewhere. Kate, thanks, as always, for joining us. No worries. Good to be here. Today, we will be playing an interview that I did with Dr. Jody Foster, who's Dr. Foster is the Vice Chair of Clinical Operations for the Department of Psychiatry in the University of Pennsylvania Health System and the author of The Schmuck in My Office. And I bet you, as I say, The Schmuck in My Office, everyone listening, if you're listening, you probably chuckle to yourself because I guess we, if you have ever worked in an office, which is most of us, We've all had a schmuck in the office. But Jody wrote a wonderful article on the First Round Capital blog, which is a really fantastic blog about all startup issues and uh, building and growing teams and building and growing companies. And the article's labeled A Taxonomy of Troublemakers for Those Navigating Difficult Colleagues. And uh, after I read the article, which was really fantastic, I approached Jody and said, do you want to come and chat about these issues? And she said, sure. I actually did the interview a few months ago. So um, it's, been in our, it's been in our library to, to bring into the podcast, but it's finally here on episode 127. So we're playing that later on in the uh, show. As usual, we cover a couple of tech issues, uh, new items in the news to help us and I help our, our listeners stay informed of what's going on. So let's get straight into the tech news for this week. Interesting story, Kate. American startup set to charge $8,000 to fill your veins with young blood. This is one of these stories that you double check. It's not um, April Fool's Day and it's not on a website like The Onion and it's not a spoof article. Tell us about filling our veins with, with young blood. So there's a company called Ambrosia Medical um, and they fill your veins with the blood of young people uh, and they're set to launch their first clinic in New York at the end of this year. So it's founded by a Stanford graduate and they've just completed their first clinical trial. There's no public results yet, uh, but the founder has said that they're very positive. But what, I mean, how does this all work? I mean, who do, who's blood is it? How, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of details in, in, in that press release that are 
that are skimmed over. I mean, sh- people aren't just going to shove blood into their body of, of just random people, houses. But what, what happens on the other end? Where does this blood come from? Honestly, not sure where it comes from. I think they're volunteers. So basically, the company's already infused about 150 patients uh, between the ages of 35 and 92 uh, with, the younger, with the blood of younger donors. And there were 81 participants in the trial. So I think, yeah, think like blood transfusion, but optional. So not in an emergency hospital setting. Hmm. So, I mean, why would people volunteer to, I mean, if the company is making money though, I would imagine these people are getting paid for this, their blood, right? I mean, I it would just, say so. Oh, yeah. So I would imagine if they're charging $8,000, they would pay someone $1,000 for their blood. So maybe go to universities and it would be yet another way that young people can fund their education, right? It could very well be, yeah, because the idea is that young blood uh, can fight aging. So there would be, you know, they could charge a lot of money for the person being infused to have the treatment which would pay for the donor, potentially. Right. So they say they've, uh, their trial, they infused close to 150 patients ranging from 35 to 92 years of old with the blood of young donors. And when they say young donors, I wonder how young they mean. I can't quite find it in the article here. I think it's up to 25. Right, up to 25. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. I mean... You you probably still in the age where you could fall under the young category as in this in this, oh, I don't in know. this equation. I don't um, know whether they count twenty five all the way to twenty six or whether they count it as of twenty five. In which case, I would be classified as old blood now. I I don't know if I would. I mean, it depends what the benefits are. Yeah, would I would I accept blood from someone I don't know, even if they've tested it for all the nasties? It's quite a concept, but I, I guess, you know, social norms, as we've discussed, are a powerful thing. And uh, who knows, maybe maybe in a few years it will just it will be a thing. But it's, uh, I suppose we accept blood in an, in an emergency situation and we don't really question it too much in an emergency situation, right? Mm. Well, that's the thing. Like, it's, it's basically a blood transfusion. You're diluting your own blood with another person's. So yeah, in an emergency, know. you would just you wouldn't really bat an eye. You just hope it was the same blood type. Well, yeah, the hospitals would take care of that. But yeah, I would. Does it? I assume that this has to be the same blood type as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I do know of a treatment at the moment. It's still early days for cancer, where they take out your own blood, they develop your own antibodies, they somehow culture your own antibodies to fight the type of cancer. If, for, for cancer patients that you have and then they put that blood back into your own body with super enhanced s- sort of uh, antibody cells to fight the cancer and they've had some terrific results with this where they use your own antibodies to fight your your own cancer cells so yeah interesting uh, interesting world of medical technology I, w- I don't know if I'd pay $8,000 to to fill my blood my, for, get some some young blood, but yeah. Anyway, good. We'll we'll follow we'll follow that story. Eight thousand dollars is is expensive as well. The the benefits would have to be more than just uh, a little bit more energy, right? 
Oh, yeah. It's supposed to be muscle rejuvenation, renewed focus, things like that. So you're basically just fighting the signs of aging. I know Silicon Valley are very into biohacking and body hacking and, you know, finding all sorts of ways to enhance and optimize improvements. So uh, they, they may be the first to cotton on to this. They have, they've also got the money down there. Anyway, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting piece of tech news. And uh, another piece of tech news, interesting you picked up the story because when I was reading it yesterday, I actually thought this would be um, an interesting story for our podcast. Google Fi, do you pronounce it Fi or Fi? Do you know? I really don't know. I was going to ask the same thing. I yeah, tend to Google think Fi. Yeah, Google Fi supports iPhones and the majority of to support iPhone and the majority of Android devices. So, so Project Google Fi, as far as I understand, is like a virtual SIM, right? It's to be able to use your phone without an actual physical SIM card. And there's all sorts of advantages by using a virtual SIM. It means that Google actually builds a virtual mobile network in all different countries. And you don't have to, those days of going to a country and swapping out SIMs for a local SIM and, and having to be very location specific are gone, where you're just actually plugged into a Google virtual mobile network. And Google has the relationships with all the local telcos and takes care of everything. And you can just travel very seamlessly. It's sort of like a more effective version of roaming, I guess. Am I correct in sort of my summary of all of this? Yeah, that's one of the one of the main benefits. Uh, so from what I can tell, it's only available to Americans at the moment. So you can get get the plan. So basically, I think it's twenty dollars for unlimited call and text, and then ten dollars a gig capped at six gigs. So after six gigs. So 6 to 15 gigs is free. After 15 gigs, you just get like a slower speed. That's quite good because the most you're going to pay is $80 or you could have data only. If you used all 6 gigs, it would be $60. But, yeah, one of the main benefits is that you keep that plan that you buy in the States and then you can travel with it to selected countries, but it's quite, it's quite robust and you can just use data and it hooks into the local networks there. It's the same thing in the States as well. If you travel around the States, it will change between the different providers to give you the best signal. And, of course, this has been available for the Pixel in the U.S. for quite some time. Unfortunately, it hasn't been avail available for the Pixel in Australia. I've got a Pixel to um, hopefully soon to update to a Pixel 3. Um, but... Yeah, so now they've expanded it to iPhones. I think it's going to be really popular with iPhone users in the States and the rest of the Android devices. I think it's still it's still only US only though, isn't it? Yes, that's what I believe. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully it will make its way to Australia. I mean, there's a lot of politics amongst telcos because telcos are uh, the companies that sell these handsets and then if the handset providers seem to be Google seems to be cannibalizing the telcos and the telcos, you know, don't want to, don't want this to happen. And there's, there's all sorts of politics in this industry between the handset providers, um, the telcos and Google. And so uh, we'll, you know, th those politics have to play out, but um, it makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I think the, I think the roaming, roaming has been such a problem for so long and, it's it's improved slightly and the costs have come down slightly, but it's it really makes a, a whole lot of sense to have a virtual layer 
around that that is managed by a company such as Google and just takes care of all the details and keeps the pricing consistent and easy. And um, it's, it's, it's really um, the, the, the reports, the reviews I've read on Google Fi uh, have been really, really good. People really love it. Yeah. I think the good thing is as well as it might be a bit late for our listeners, but today is the 28th of November. And if you purchase a Fi-enabled phone, they'll basically give you the price of the phone in travel credit. So for certain airlines, hotels, Airbnbs. So they're kind of like they're really pushing for people to get Google Fi-enabled devices because I think there is a difference between the capabilities of a Google phone with the with Fi already in there and then having an iPhone, for example. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you get and, more if you buy a device that's already got it enabled. Right. Well, and it's not it's not in Canada as well yet, is it? No, I tried looking today because on the website you can actually search the areas to see what the coverage is like and it only shows the mm-hmm. states, which makes me think it's not available anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think even though they very closely aligned Canada and the states have very different telco politics as far as my understanding is. Yes. Um, it's very expensive in Canada compared to the states to run your phone. Yeah, that's uh interesting. Um okay, great. Well, keep an eye on Google Google Fi, um especially if you're in the US and um you want to sort of optimize things, and yeah, it's it's good that Google's Google challenges all these industries. It's you know competition is just just really good for for us all. So it's interesting they come up with these uh, innovative services and keep pushing, and uh, we we all benefit from it. But um, I do hope they bring it to Australia pretty soon because we also our telco industry here, as being a small country, just hasn't really been competitive enough. So I hope that I'm, I'm hoping they'll eventually they'll eventually come here. The, the, the technologies usually usually trickle down here eventually. I know Spotify took a while to come to Australia, I think, and um, all the other services. So that's Google Fi. But um, we're going to take uh, we're going to take a short break. It's it's a Monkey Podcast episode one. Two seven. Uh, you listen to Kevin Garber and Kate Frappel. Remember, you can always email us at uh, podcast at itsamonkey.com. If you want to be a guest, you know of any guests, you want to say hi, tell us who you are. There's a podcast, Kate, that I listen to, and he gets his listeners just to send uh, audio clips just to introduce themselves and say where they're listening and what they're doing. And it's just, it's great. He gets a few clips of people who are like, I'm busy on a bushwalk or, you know, walking up a mountain and listening to your podcast and I listen every week or I'm busy doing my shopping and my name's, you know, Mary from Seattle. And it's pretty cool. It's quite, it's quite interesting to hear who the other listeners of the podcast are. So if you want to do that and uh, just send a little hi and shout out and you can even name your business, send an email to podcast.itsamonkey.com. Keep it really short. Um, we're going to take a short break and we're going to play the interview with Dr. Jody Foster, who's the Vice Chair of Clinical Operations for the Department of Psychiatry in the University of Pennsylvania Health System and author of The Schmuck in My Office. And... Um, We'll play the interview that I did with her a few months ago. So uh, just stay with us for a few moments. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the business operations manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? 
But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high-quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclists in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. And I also co-host this podcast regularly with my co-host, Kate Frappel. And um, we like to chat about everything related to um, the startup world, tech startups, managing and and um, leading teams. And one of the aspects of my job, which uh, being a tech founder and a, a tech CEO that most people um, or many people may not realize is you actually have to really develop the, the people management side of things, uh, building teams, managing teams, leading teams, especially in the tech industry, you know, perhaps because in the tech industry, well, it's, it's, it's not the heart of, it's not perhaps like the, the marketing industry or the HR industry where, where, um, you know, part of, part of, uh, what, what people are actually about and their, their job skills and their descriptions is about people at the core of what we do is about technology. Um, and sometimes the, the, the human aspect is not uh, considered as much. So part of what I had to do when I became a CEO is actually learn very quickly about um, leading people, managing people, uh, what makes them tick. And during my day at work, I actually keep my, my tweet stream open on a uh, separate screen on TweetDeck. And uh, one of the articles that popped up a little while ago um, was about dealing with difficult people at work. It was an article on, on really one of my favorite favorite blogs, which is uh, First Round Review, which I believe is put together by the venture capital company uh, First Round Capital. And I stumbled upon this article, A Taxonomy of Troublemakers for Those Navigating Difficult Colleagues. And I tracked down, it was such a great article, and I tracked down the author of this article, and uh, I've managed to to get her at the end of my Skype line. So I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Jody Foster, who's the Vice Chair of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, The Schmuck in My Office, How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work. Jody, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I mean, your article really, really, um, it, it was such an interesting, you know, I think a lot of people in the tech industry where we start from technology, not people. And we don't know where to start to consider the workplace and particularly when something goes wrong in a workplace situation. And what I liked about your article is it speaks to tech people in that it provides a little bit of a framework and a little bit of a, an, an, an analysis of where to start when you are having some challenges with people at work. Absolutely. That's, uh, and that's largely what the book is about. So do you, I mean, do you find in your experience 
that tech companies and startup companies um, have any unique or, or they have a uh, there's a sort of trend of specific challenges as opposed to uh, any other industries and particularly since we're an incredibly fast moving industry we are industry that's that have you know work with people that are incredibly talented in a certain manner for example engineering and technology but may be sort of less um, talented or developed in other areas so I, I do think that each industry has its own personality, even uh, within medicine, the kind of person who might go into one field or another, there can be some generalizations. But the actual answer I have to your question is probably not going to satisfy you, which is that from my experience, people are people wherever they are. And one industry really isn't particularly different from another so much so that when um, when I sat down to write the book, one of the choices was, well, what do, you know, in what sphere do we talk about uh, interpersonal conflict? And, you know, I like to joke that my next book is going to be The Schmuck in My Bedroom because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really doesn't matter where or how you're having uh, conflicts or, or dealing with some disruption in your life or in your work, and and uh, it's just a ubiquitous situation. Any conflict can be anywhere, and every time you put two people together, you you have that potential. I mean, I I read somewhere a while ago, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. That you know, the theory of organizational behavior at the heart of it is that the workplace reflects to some sort of symbolic degree. Uh, evolves into a similar dynamic to a a family. Is that is that fair sort of assessment? Um, you know, I I absolutely have heard that as well. There are certain um, people, you know, in the coaching uh, business who think everything that uh, should be uh, funneled through a systems or a familial construct. Um, and again, as a psychiatrist by trade, I think all of these uh, through in terms of. You know, individual personality traits and how they bounce up against other people's individual personality traits. But again, to, you know, to your point, there is absolutely no question that there are certain industries that attract certain kinds of people. So you could call that a familial similarity. But like in any family, those subtle uh, personality differences are often what lead to the conflicts. Yeah, it's. Um... It's really interesting. And you, you speak about the two common um, archetypes at startups, and one being the narcissist. And uh, I mean, what, one, of the, one of the sort of contradictions of being a startup founder is you need to have a uh, almost irrational self-belief in yourself and in your idea. And That's right. Which, which leads to, you know, the, the narcissistic sort of elements, I guess, a sort of uh, a delusional view of yourself. And I think the... Uh, your narcissistic framework was really, really interesting how it's a, a defense mechanism for insecurity, right? Yeah, I mean, um, we, you have to have some narcissism. If you don't, you're, you know, the world's going to beat you up. If, uh, if you don't have some healthy narcissism, you're never going to take chances. You're never going to take risks. You're never going to try new things. You're never going to ask someone out on a date. It's just not going to happen. And so we need to have core narcissism. But the problem is that if the balance of, you know, uh, my, my strengths and my weaknesses it, it falls out of whack and entitlement and self-centeredness 
and attention-seeking behavior and a need to constantly inflate your own self-worth take over, then you can have real trouble. On the other side of the coin, when uh, someone, as you described, can make something happen and then, like, let's say a startup, and let's say that that startup goes public and then is a raging failure, that narcissistic injury can be particularly wounding and dangerous for the narcissist because of, of that dichotomy between inflated and elevated self-esteem and, and a core of really low self-esteem. So when you get a, a severe narcissistic injury, it, it is devastating. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing that I, uh, the, the two points come to mind. I mean, the, the one thing that, one statistic that I always share with people is that the second most common reason for startups to fail in Silicon Valley is co-founder fallout. So, you know, and a lot of that is, is personalities clashing with each other and, and egos clashing with each other. And the second element, which is a more tragic element, is, uh, you know, there's been a wave of suicides in the tech industry in the last sort of five, six, seven years, you know. And, and obviously, it's a very, very complex issue, a very tragic issue. But, you know, what you were saying about the, the narcissist being very, and of which we all have, um, elements and and maybe in, in us founders we have a little, it's dialed up a little bit but being almost I mean the word that comes to mind brittle right and our, our self-worth and I can even speak for myself here that our self-worth is so tied in to our business and our metrics that it even oh, yeah. su- it even surprises me sometimes when uh, we'll have a month where there's some challenges or certain metrics are not going my way and it's right. um it sort of it sort of shifts my world quite a bit. Yep. It's quite it's, yep. it, it even sort of and I struggle to rationalize it entirely as well. So there's it, it runs right through to our core. Yep, and you describe it as brittle as someone who's you know uh, thinking about experiences that he's had with this, and I you know as somebody who might be uh, treating or 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 being empathic to it would use the word fragile. Hmm. Because there's, again, there's this dichotomy. The analogy that I used uh, in the book and in the article is uh, that if you imagine that your actual ego size is the size of a peanut or a walnut, what we do is we drop that peanut into a balloon and then we blow the balloon up as big as we can make it to keep people away from that little insecure center. And that makes us look big, and that makes us fill a room with ourselves, and that makes us have charisma and be somebody that people want to follow. But when we are wounded, when we are faced with an injury to our egos, just like a balloon, it pops in the snap of a finger and is right-sized back down to that little peanut again. And it just changes your world. If something's not going right, your, your ego is so tied in to these successes that when there are failures, they hit much harder. And I think, you know, being a founder is, or I suppose, a leader of any shape. It's, it's quite challenging because part of your role is to lead with confidence during the good times and the bad times, right. which, which means that, that that front, that consistent front that you need to put up there can sometimes, can sometimes be draining. And if you don't have an outlet to, to be totally authentic and and in some safe environments, I guess your humanity can get the better of you sometimes as well, right? Right, right. I mean, uh, you, you, it's it's the concept of balance. Uh, if if you, you know, there there are times that you 
can't be positive, obviously, and, 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 and you have to be real about that. But, you know, when, as you mentioned before, when you are the parentified object, when you are the leader, and, you know, people are looking to you to be the rock. And if, if you don't have that core balance, be it in, in outlets that keep you that way or, or just in sort of health in, in the balance uh, internally that you have, then, yeah, it's going to be a problem. One of the aspects that I think is incredibly important and useful in the workplace is giving feedback, providing feedback. And one of the areas of your article that was really fantastic is that you provided some excellent ways to package feedback in a way that was not only constructive, but it was, it was forward-looking and sensitive, but still very direct and meaningful. I mean, what tips can you give around generalized tips, perhaps even with some of the examples that you gave in the article of just approaching feedback? I mean, in my experience, people really, especially, and, and there's probably cultural elements at play here as well. I know in South Africa, there's a lot more comfort with being direct. In Australia, there's a lot less comfort with being direct because people have a fear of being rude or being out of line. People tend to tend to avoid giving really direct feedback, which of course can compound the issue even further. You, you got it right. You just described uh, between South Africa and Australia. You just described my uh, situation as a New Yorker living in Philadelphia. Same uh-huh. thing. New Yorkers are much more direct. That's how I was raised to be, and I believe in it completely, uh, as you do. And in Philadelphia, just as you said, it's much more common to talk around something a little bit for fear of being rude or hurtful or whatever it is. At the end of the day, I, I am unswerving in my position that uh, if you have something to say to somebody, you must say it. And you should keep it short, you should be direct and concise, and you should get to the heart of it. The fact is that when you're trying to give someone feedback, they're, especially, you know, if you're a boss giving feedback to someone who's reporting to you, after that conversation, they're going to go over it in their head over mm-hmm. and over again. And the more you talk, the more fodder you give them to misinterpret, to get paranoid, to obsess, whatever it is. But if you keep it short and you just say what you have to say, the message can be so clear that there's really no room for that. And it's so much more helpful. And I've seen it again and again and again and again. And people think it's rude, but in fact, it's so much kinder if you do it, do it with empathy. I think both in the workplace in the per- and in the personal life, when people try to protect people by, by not being direct, it actually lands up ultimately hurting them more, right? Completely. Absolutely. You've got to rip off the Band-Aid. But in, in, in that spirit of being direct and avoiding ambiguity, what about feedback in writing, right? Because that way they can come back and they can reread it and they can revisit it. And it, the, the, you can't read, you know, a, a conversation, you can start, you know, adding your own elements and, and, and being revisionist about it. So um, yeah, I, it's ba- I would say basically the same thing. It is so much harder to do these things you know, it's like breaking up with someone by text. It's just so much harder to do these things when you're not actually in person. But same thing. I mean, if you write a, uh, a document to somebody and there's 
so much circular material in it that it can be interpreted any number of ways. So you might read it and think it it says X, but the reader might read it and think it says Y. And again, because there's no potential for in-the-moment feedback, someone can't say, well, what do you mean by this? It, it again, uh, gives someone uh, a lot of fodder for just sitting on it, thinking through it, permuting it, and, you know, it can be absolutely troublesome. You know, and again, I, I want to reinforce, you know, you have to try to be empathic as, as you call out uh, a behavior or as you, as you give feedback. But by the same token, because you're doing it, you want it to stick. You want it to get through to the person. So even in, in the written word, again, be concise, be direct. If you have to say something, just say it, write it, whatever. But you have to think about the, the extra things you're putting in there that are uh, subject to misinterpretation. Dr. Foster, I think I've got the theory that people actually think they're communicating a lot more and a lot effectively in the workplace and in their personal relationships than they actually are, probably by, <laughs> by a significant order of magnitude. It is probably true in the world, yeah. I mean, I mean, you pre, you're probably familiar with the the agile process of developing um, software, and one of the great things about the agile process is you have these retrospectives where um, you review what went well, what went badly, what we could do better, and I think that's been a great step up for our industry. Little elements like that, because as mentioned, people in our industry like methodology; they like. Um, Methodology is something different, which also comes into like play. I like methodology as well. <laughs> the methodology is is it it takes the slipperiness away from it, right? It's just yeah. it's not yeah. this it's open like root, ended. It's like a, a root cause analysis. Yeah. It's I I always smile when I talk to some of my t tech team members and I say, "How are things going?" and so often they'll start talking about their specific work and project and oh, I'm fixing this and that. And, and I'm like, no, no, no. How's everything going? And it's too, it's, it's too open-ended for them. You know, they just don't, they just don't think in those terms where, so it's, it's where as a methodology and a framework sort of assists them uh, a, a lot better. Um, how, uh, Dr. Foster, how as a leader, as a CEO, how can I encourage um, constructive criticism back to myself from my team. I mean, obviously, I'm the one that you know can pull rank, etc. Um, they may have a little bit of fear around their job. Yeah. That that. But how can I actually say to them, well, I'm happy. I I'd like feedback. I want to improve too. I don't know everything either. I also make mistakes. Sure, I might actually still make the ultimate decision, but feel comfortable giving me appropriate feedback. That's a great question. Um, I usually get it from the other end, which is how can I give feedback to my boss? But you're saying, how can I be a boss who wants feedback? So step number one, I think you need to, to check yourself. Do you really want feedback or do you want people to compliment you? <laughs> and and I don't, I'm not speaking about you, mm -hmm. of course, but sometimes people say, tell me how I did, give me feedback. And they really don't want it. You know, they really, they, they want to hear something good. And if you have something uh, negative or more constructive to say, it, it could really blow back on you. So I think that rather than as a, as a leader or a boss to go around and say, give me feedback, I think instead you should use your people skills and your ability to um, 
sense dynamics and sense what's going on. And I would do it instead in, in question form. So you might say, you know, I, I noticed uh, at the meeting when I said so-and-so, you kind of winced. What, you know, what was, what was that about? Did I do something? And, and in asking a genuine question, you are more likely to get a genuine answer. And when you then, if, if and when you are lucky enough for them to say something constructive, then your task is to, you know, be open to it and not defensive about it and thankful for it and to take it under advisement. And as your workers see, as they have little teeny weeny victories with giving you feedback and it being a positive experience, the threshold to do it is going to drop and you will open up communication that, you know, is, is exactly what you're looking for in a healthy workplace. I think that's a great point is once, once there's positive reinforcement that um, they've provided you with constructive criticism and uh, everything's proceeded well after that, they'll right. develop. Right. You, you may have to be the one to ask for it, but you can't ask for it in a way that, that is, feels dangerous. You have to you know, say, I noticed this or how, you know, I'm doing this. How do you feel about that? You, know, you saw me in that. How, you know, um, do, do you think I might have spoken to that person in a different way. I mean, you know, there are a million different ways to request to start a conversation about how something went or is going that can lead to a lot of great feedback and, and your workers seeing that you're a genuine, genuinely somebody who wants to do better. What's, what has helped me both in the business relationship side of things and the personal side of things is actually, and I know it's become trendy to talk about mindfulness, etc., but really to observe an emotional reaction and don't act on it if it's a if it's an intense emotional reaction right so i even think of it in terms of sidestepping it i actually picture myself just sidestepping it so that i there's no knee jerk reaction that gets into some some cycle and creates further damage to a uh, sort of sensitive situation yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the reason uh, mindfulness is is so popular these days is because it's great and it's really important, and it slows everything down, and it lets uh, you know it, it it allows people to take the time to think, you know, in in a in a balanced and uh, non reactive way, and and that absolutely is going to be better than uh, impulsively reacting to things that occur around you. Yeah, I think that word impulsively reacting, I think it's such a good habit. I always tell people it's just pause, pause. You know, if you're feeling right. an emotion, just pause. Don't, don't do anything. Wait, because you don't, want to, you don't want to make a sensitive situation worse. And in, and in fact, you can defuse sometimes easily just by putting a buffer of time, right? Because then, then temp is cool. We, we've got this thing called the reptilian yeah. brain, right? <laughs> Which is still very much a part of us. Right. You, um, the last thing you want to do is fire off an email when you're furious, right? I mean, that, that's so often a mistake, especially when several hours, then the next morning, you have a completely different perspective on the matter. It's just important to resist that reptilian aspect. Remote teams, Dr. Foster, becoming a bigger um, sort of part of our world, especially in our industry. Um, obviously, it's great because people can have the flexibility to work from home or work from different jurisdictions. It's, uh, it allows 
companies, small companies like ourselves to hire from anywhere in the world. Of course, right. it removes an incredibly important part of communication. I mean, I, I can't remember the stat, but 60, 70% of communication is nonverbal, something like that. And suddenly you reduce down to um, a video conference or some text yep. bits and pieces. Our team is at least 50% remote at the moment, and we're still sort of learning, and it lends itself to certain types of technical work more so than other types of strategic or conversational work. Any sort of tips based on your experience, how to, how to, how does, I guess, take that nonverbal communication and somehow layer it in, a, in that virtual sense? Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. It is, it is the way of the world. You know, as a psychiatrist, I, I can tell you that, I mean, I, I am personally, I mean, my phone is basically sewn onto my skin. I'm constantly with my device. And yet, as a psychiatrist, I can say that that you know these this these these increased choices in how to communicate. There's there's talking on the phone instead of talking in person, and then there's emailing, and then there's texting, and then there's this that and the other thing. And there's so many different ways to communicate now that any given person can just choose the communication style that is most comfortable for their uh, tolerance for intimacy. So. You know, if if it's much easier for you to deal with people in this way than that, you you can do it now. In, in you know, many many years ago, people didn't have that option, and so I think it's just something uh, to be incredibly aware of. I think um, that when you are forming relationships remotely, when you are only seeing uh, people either in the written word or or on a video screen it's it's just so much harder to have that extra texture of of actually being with and so the only advice because again you you're never going to stop the the train that is progress in this in this arena the only thing is that when things seem to be going awry so you know when an email seems to have an unexpected affect, let's say it's hostile, whatever, when a text doesn't make sense and it seems like it's coming from left field, when, when someone, you know, to whom you're speaking looks a certain way, you know, and, and it may be that it's simply, you know, just because it's going through the waves, it's so important to make it as human as you possibly can. Instead of going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with emails, just pick up the phone and say, I, don't, I didn't exactly understand what you meant when you wrote that because it sounded this way to me. And nine times out of ten, the person's going to go, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry. That's not how I meant it. You're going to have to work a little bit harder to get to know somebody because you're getting to know them in all these different ways that are are not simply being in a room and sort of sensing who they are and you know getting to know them in in a human contact kind of way it's very very tough and i find it for some whatever reason i land up being much more direct on messenger which I'm trying to bring awareness to that for myself as well, which, you know, because I, I risk maybe just, just coming across as too curt. But for whatever yeah. reason, I'm much softer in real life. And on Messenger, I just land up being very direct. It's, al it's almost I switch into some different persona. It's, it's, I'm trying to understand is, myself why, why that happens. Problem. 
Yeah, because I mean, look, just today I got a uh, an email from my boss, and the fact that that it was one sentence without a period mm-hmm. said to me that she was angry. Right. <laughs> now, for all I know, she fired it off because she's you know was between one meeting or the other. This is what the things that you don't know when you're communicating in these different ways. But if you have the personal awareness to know that you are curt in in different forms of communication and that that's not who you are. Why on earth would you have two different versions of you flying around? You know, be yourself. Yeah, because, so. yeah, you're, you're not going to let people know you if that's how you're doing it. And, you know, on the really negative side, they may misinterpret that you're not a nice person. Yeah. You know, even the addition of an exclamation point to show enthusiasm can, can make people right off the bat think you're such a friendly person. And, you know, you, we really have to pay attention to that now that we are communicating in these different ways. Words are powerful. Symbols are powerful. It's. Um, I, I do think this is a temporary issue, Dr. Foster, because I do believe that in a few years we'll have augmented reality. And when we chat in a few years' time, you'll be sitting in a room next to me, so to speak, in a, in a projected version of yourself, probably in a way that I will be able to see your body language and I will be able to pick up some of that nonverbal communication. So I think, um, uh, I, I think, you know, again, because I'm a psychiatrist, I'm always going to say there's there's no substitution, though, for, you know, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that anybody go backward. But we have to remember, you know, you can't you can't marry a hologram. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Right. <laughs> not yet. Meaning you want to. I hope not. Like, uh, you know, I was chatting. We, we had a big um you know, the marriage equality debate a while ago in Australia, and they finally pushed it through. And I was, I was chatting to my sister about it at, uh, when it was happening, and she's got three kids, two of which are two two young little girls. And she was saying to me, "Look, I don't know. When, by the time they start dating, who knows? They're probably going to be dating robots. You know, it's like <laughs> who knows what the future? I mean, true. anything. It's sometimes it's best not to think about it because uh, it can seem very." Very esoteric, very surreal, and and sometimes way too dystopian. But but I'm sure it will. I'm sure there'll be a lots of benefits to the future world. But um, um, but there's never ever going to be uh, a question that interpersonal skill and knowledge and savvy is always going to serve you well. Dr. Fossick, can you recommend any resources, to, you know, besides your article and your book, or even authors that per- perhaps a technical person listening to this interview for a place for them to start? I mean, a lot of the language that we use and the analysis might even just be very foreign to them. It's not the world of emotions and words and and you know metaphors and subconscious forces, all very unfamiliar to them. Anything else that you can recommend them to sort of kickstart their their own journey to sort of self awareness around uh, these? Um, it's a hard question because, believe it or not, there's not there's oh, oh, there's more and more literature on you know uh, the concept of incivility at work, and um, and that's just more of a behave nicely uh, mandate. But in terms of of uh, sort of trying to begin to understand people and things like that, it it would be very hard to give a uh, a specific resource or a set of resources. I will say that, you know, as someone in the tech industry, to do what you do, which is to use the first round capital, uh, the first round review, because they have a wonderful breadth of of what they talk about, and, and it's really relevant to you guys. 
But, you know, past that, I think uh, people who want to go on... I guess the journey of of learning about themselves and learning about other people are going to have to really go through what way and in what manner they want to learn it best. You know, some people will want to sit down and read, you know, Sigmund Freud's entire standard edition, you know, all 20 volumes or whatever it is. And somebody else might, yeah. (laughs) And, and um, on the other hand, there might be, you know, some people who just want to do something like, read my book, it says, okay, there's 10 kind of people you're going to get into trouble with. And, uh, you know, here's what they look like and here's what you do. So I, I actually, I, I, I would, um, I would be averse to directing anyone to any one thing or, or a few things. I think if you want to learn, you should, uh, start on uh, the path of figuring out how you learn best and, and what's available in that arena. What do you think of um, nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's work? I'm not familiar with it. I, d- I definitely would be interested in your, your – again, it provides, provides a methodology, and his sort of thesis is that a lot of communication is, quote-unquote, violent, uh, not physically violent. But, for example, if you say to a, a colleague – You've made that mistake again. I've 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 told you several times not to do that. Like he would say, that's that's a violent form of communication, and mm-hmm. and and I guess in in your examples in your article, you you inherently are doing this, and to repackage that into a nonviolent form, which talks about really a lot about how it affects you. It's just hey, when you make this oversight, it really impacts me, and I've got to stay later. And I have mentioned it before. Is there any way that we can go through this that's going to help you? And um, he, it's a lot more than that, but that's essentially the gist of it. And I have found that pretty useful, the whole nonviolent communication, particularly coming from a culture like South Africa, where it is a very, probably at times, overly direct culture. And it, we can have a little bit of the opposite problems. <laughs> um, well, I, this is uh, something that I've written a great deal about because I think it's, it's the crux of the issue. I don't call it violent or aggressive. I would frame it more as unempathic. And so, so like, for example, the reason to try to get to know the people around you or the people you're not getting along with is because if you can get underneath the basic dynamic or the basic inherent anxieties that are making people act badly or what you perceive as badly, if you can understand it, you know, if I'm a micromanaging boss and I torture you, but at some point you understand that I am absolutely freaked out, terrified of losing control of my world, then, you know, I might still be really annoying to you, Mm -hmm. but you might have a little bit more empathy for me. And when I'm harassing you, you you might be more able to say, you know what, this isn't about me. This is her problem. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, um, uh, in dealing with a narcissist, in the talk I did for first round, Um, I gave some examples of what to say and what not to say. And so like with a narcissist, you don't want to say, you know, I don't care how good you are at your job, your behavior is unacceptable, and obviously something is wrong with you. You need therapy. You know, that's never going to work. But if instead, so so basically the premise is that you want to tell somebody that you don't like what they're doing and you want them to intervene in some way and stop doing it. If you can empathize with the fact that this person is probably attention-seeking and aggressive and whatever because they need to elevate themselves because somewhere inside they don't feel good about themselves at the end of the day. And instead you say something like, uh, you know, I really think you could be a, a CEO one day or a chair one day, but I worry that this 
thing that you do, this one thing you do that makes people feel so bad gets in your way. So maybe a coach could help you achieve your full potential. And, and, and so by sort of framing it in language that they want to hear, they're much more likely to listen to your message. I saw that example and I actually, it was a, a really good example. It was a, it's a powerful way of reframing. And even when you read those examples, your own reaction to the, the quote, the, the ineffective version and the effective version, my own reaction is quite different to them. What, what actually, funnily enough, helped me develop a bit of, quite a lot of self-awareness and communication skills was actually hanging around regularly at, at a hippie festival in Australia, a big hippie festival of about 10,000 people. Think similar to Burning Man, but a much more sort of a less chaotic version of it out in the bush. And the, the only reason I bring up this point is that we can learn a lot of skills for the workplace in places that aren't the workplace. And these people, a lot of these people are very much into, into communication, into self-awareness, into kindness. And a lot of the language that they used and a lot of the resources they were all into were, were actually incredibly, incredibly useful to me. So I think that's why I even say to my team regularly, you know, I go to various conferences and talks and festivals and I'm always looking as a CEO for new inputs into my system to make me a better person. And that's not necessarily on my Twitter stream, on my tweet stream. It's not necessarily at a TechCrunch conference. It might be in the strangest or the most unusual of places you will get input and skills that are actually going to make you a better leader. That's absolutely true. I, I think that you know anybody who's truly interested in self-betterment, there are so many things a person can do to build themselves and to make themselves uh, calmer, uh, more aware of of their uh, weaknesses or their or their um, traits that that are troublesome or whatever. Interestingly, though, I will tell you that uh, as someone who uh, ended up developing a niche in intervening with people who are deemed interpersonally difficult, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what really trained me was two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is that my career prior to 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 you know that particular niche has always been in adult locked inpatient psychotic psychiatric units. Wow. Wow. So, you know, dealing with the most mm. aberrant behavior and how to, you know, keep people safe and how to set limits on stuff like that. So that was number one. Number two, and much more important, I had a baby. Right. And when you're raising a child and you're parenting a child and, you know, it's fine to say to a kid, don't walk into the street. But it's not as easy to say to a six foot five manager, you know, don't raise your voice. And if you can remember that so much of this is just, you know, the same limits that we uh, give our children to help them be better, uh, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's why I, I, you know, encourage my team to. I like it when I interview a potential candidate and they have a, a varied life. I think everything can feed off each other. So, um, Dr. Foster, it's really been fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate your time. I know it's, it's late where you are. Time zones in Australia are never really on our side when it comes to the rest of the world. <laughs> Dr. Foster is the Vice Chair of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, The Schmuck in My Office, How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work. I'm going to get my team a copy of that so that they can learn to deal with me, um, on, <laughs> on a, especially on a, on a bad day. Uh, we'll put a link up to the the first round um, review article, which is just really fantastic, and also to your book on our 
on, on the show notes for this podcast. And thanks so much for joining us. We really do appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use Check Dog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. It's something, Kate, that I say very frequently, the, the hardest, the most difficult part of uh, life is the human layer and you just uh, you just look all you have to do is look how good we are at technology and how bad we are at getting on with each other um, and the politics of the world so in the workplace it makes makes sense that in the workplace there's a lot of tricky uh, dynamics and uh, personalities to to navigate and it's it's not easy and if you're a leader you you have to constantly be thinking of uh, reflecting on on these challenges and improving your skills and improving your the lens through which you see the dynamics and um it's it's um yeah it's something that i spend a lot of time thinking about in in getting the team right and as as the cliche goes it's just team is everything so these are really important considerations uh topics to to reflect on yeah definitely but also i found interesting is the you're not really looking to, you know, to work on one person. Like that, the impact of a single personality can infect the rest of the team. So then you're dealing with more problems and more issues with more people. So it's it's an interesting, she mentions a few different ways of kind of approaching, I guess, the source of the problem um, and making sure it doesn't kind of trickle through the rest of the team, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the issues with the problem team member is not even so much that they are the problem or that perhaps they're not producing in a way that's contributing. Probably the biggest issue is the flow on effects to the good team members. So you always want to make sure that your good team members are happy, are producing, are in an environment that uh, is conducive to them being happy and sticking around. And definitely the last thing you want to do is have the bad team members alienate the good team members. Then suddenly you you have two issues. You've got uh, the bad team member, the problem team member, and you've got the good team member that is unhappy. So it's very, very crucial to, to deal with problematic team members AS, ASAP. One of the things that actually a colleague who worked in HR said and you know, is people bring their full selves to work. And I think that as a leader, that's very important. You know, it's very important that we view people through that lens that they are complete people and they, they bring uh, their history and their personalities and their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's incredibly important that, that as a leader, you, you view people as a complete self and not just a resource. As soon as you start viewing people just as a resource, you don't land up leading and managing in the right way. Very true. I think we've all been in jobs and situations where we've, We've been managed as a resource and you can sort of feel it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't feel like you're making a particularly big impact. 
you can sort of feel you're just a bum on a seat so you're just you know you're just a resource to be scheduled in and leaders need to to know that a job is a big deal to someone it's their life it's that what they go home and talk about with their friends it's what they think about so it's um so yeah we're going to link to that article on the show notes and um Definitely the article works very well with the interview. So go and have a look at look at that article. And particularly if you're a leader or a manager and and uh, which comes with the territory, tricky people in the workplace. Jody, uh, Dr. Foster breaks it down really, really nicely. And it's and, and sometimes just having a framework which which you can look at these issues and just uh, it just helps you understand what's what's going on and can help you sort of tackle with it. You're not just lumped with the situation. You can just, you can reverse engineer the situation and disentangle it and say, okay, this is what's happening or that person, this is maybe what's going on for, for that person. And it's a, it's an endless, it's, it's, it's a road that you never reach the end of uh, managing people. And you always, you can always get better at it. Um, I'm hoping I got, I've gotten better over the years, but I certainly, certainly still have uh, there's a lot of gray in leading and managing people so anyway i hope you enjoy the article i hope you enjoyed that interview and we're going to leave it there for this week episode 127 you can follow us on twitter and on facebook we're going to try get we're going to try get another one out before the end of the year and um thanks for listening we appreciate it please share with your friends or tell someone about it and um kate and i will catch you next time See ya.